Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And please note that if you're listening to this episode, you are listening to the second part of a two-part review examining Stephen King's final entry in the Dark Tower universe, the Dark Tower, book seven, the Dark Tower. So if you're just tuning in now, head on over to the first part. And if you haven't read The Dark Tower at all, I would strongly advise not listening to this at all. Listen to the episodes that you have re, um, uh, of books that you have read. Read The Dark Tower, and then you can pick up this journey with the rest of us. So those of you who have made it to the path at the end of the clearing, welcome, and here we go. Part 4, The White Lands of Empathica, Dandalo. Chapter 1, The Thing Under the Castle. While in Richard Sayer's office, they discover two paintings by Patrick Danville, the character first introduced to us as a child in the pages of Insomnia. One painting is of Mordred, complete with the birthmark and the scar along the side of his body where Susanna had shot off his leg, and the other is of the Dark Tower in the Field of Roses. Later, Susanna has a dream where she's with Eddie and Jake in New York at Christmas time. It's here where she renounces the tower, instead stating that she'd rather be here with the two of them. This, of course, is what happens to her, and I wonder if it's because she chooses life in this dream rather than death in reality. The remaining three members of the Ka-Tet head under Fedek to find the right door, and it's as if King remembers that he made a few bucks here and there as a horror writer, and turns this segment <clears throat> into a horror story uh, in which a monstrous thing chases them through the underground corridors. Roland skidded to a stop immediately, no questions, no protest, and pivoted on his heels. She held the burning flashlight out before her, and for a moment they both saw the head of something wet and covered with pink albino eyes. Below them was a mouth the size of a trap door, filled with squirming tentacles. The sterno didn't burn brightly, but in this Stygian blackness, it was bright enough to make the thing recoil. Before it disappeared into the blackness again, she saw all of those eyes squeezing shut and had a moment to think of how sensitive they must be if even the little guttering flame like this could do that. It's a scene that has absolutely no bearing on the story or any lasting importance. It's just fun to watch our characters journey into a gooey horror story. Chapter 2, on Badlands Avenue. They manage to escape the blubbering beast and make it to the Badlands, lands blasted by the Crimson King ages ago. Here, King presents them with their newest challenge, the constant cold. It's a very rich detail. The temperature isn't freezing. It's just constantly cold. And it's something the characters haven't had to deal with yet. It's a brutal, soul-crushing leg of their journey. At this point, any romanticism from the tale is long gone. All that's left of Roland's grim... I'm sorry, all that's left is Roland's grim determination and a setting to match it. As Roland says, there's little in life as disheartening as constant cold. King dedicates uh, this chapter to the month they spend in the spirit-draining cold of the Badlands, and it sounds hellish and miserable. They eventually pass into the kingdom of the king, where ghosts dwell in the ancient rotted ruins of houses. 
Here, King creates a setting so interesting and unsettling, it angers me that we didn't spend more time here, that we didn't learn more about it. And all he gives us really are on pages 592 to 593. It was a weirding village, and she could not begin to imagine what species of freakish people might have once lived here. The side streets were cobbled, the cottages were narrow and steep-roofed, the doorways thin and abnormally high, as if made for the sort of narrow folk seen in the distorted curves of funhouse mirrors. They were Lovecraft houses, Clark Ashton Smith houses, William Hope Hodgson Borderland houses, all crammed together under a Lee Brown Coy sickle moon, the houses all a-tilt and a-lean on the hills that grew up gradually around the way they walked. Here and there one had collapsed, and there was an unpleasantly organic look to these ruins, as if they were torn and rotted flesh instead of ancient boards and glass. Again and again she caught herself seeing dead faces peering at her from some configuration of boards and shadow, faces that seemed to rotate in the rubble and follow their course with some terrible zombie eyes. They made her think of the doorkeeper on Dutch Hill, and that made her shiver. On their fourth night on King's Way, they came to a major intersection where the main road made a crooked turn, bending more south than east, and thus off the path of the beam. Ahead, less than a night's walk, or ride if one happened to be aboard the ho-fat luxury taxi, was a high hill with an enormous black castle dug into it. In the chancy moonlight, it had a vaguely oriental look to Susanna. The towers bulged at the tops, as if wishing they could be minarets. Fantastic walkways flew between them, crisscrossing above the courtyard in front of the castle proper. Some of these walkways had fallen to ruin, but most still held. She could also hear a vast, low rumbling sound. Not machinery. She asked Roland about it. Water, he said. What water? Do you have any idea? He shook his head. But I'd not drink what flowed close to that castle, even if I were dying of thirst. The place is bad, she muttered meaning not just the castle, but the nameless village of leaning houses that had grown up all around it. And Roland's not empty. Susanna, if thee feels if thee feels knocking spirits for entrance into thy head, knocking or gnawing, then bid them away. Will it work? I'm not sure it will, he admitted. But I've heard that such things must be granted entry, and they're wily at gaining it by trick and by ruse. She had read Dracula, as well as heard Pierre Callahan's story of Jerusalem's lot and understood what Roland meant all too well. He took her gently by the shoulder and turned her away from the castle, which might not be naturally black after all she had decided, but only tarnished by the years. Daylight would tell. For the present, their way was lit by cloud-scummed quarter moon. Several other roads led away from the place where they had stopped, most as crooked as broken fingers. The one Roland wanted her to look upon was straight, however, and Susanna realized it was the only completely straight street she had seen since the deserted village began to grow silently up around their way. It was smoothly paved rather than cobbled and pointed southeast along the path of the beam. Above it flowed the moon-gilded clouds like boats in a procession. Does thee glimpse a darkish blur at the horizon, dear? he murmured. Yes, a dark blur and a whitish band in front of it. What is it, do you know? I have an idea, but I'm not sure, Roland said. Let's have a rest here. Dawn's not far off, and then we'll both see. And besides, I don't want to approach yonder castle at night. So much of the last two novels <clears throat> had focused on the science fiction aspects of the story. 
the Doombots, the Lightsabers, the Robot Horses, the Sneeches, Angie, Andy, Nigel, the Old One's Doorways, the transformation of Mia from a spirit to a human. With Le Cassie Roy Roos. Is that how you pronounce it? Le Casse Roy Russe? I don't know. But the castle of the, the king, Susanna and Roland and Oi, step into a fairy tale of a twisted landscape. Chapter 3, The Castle of the Crimson King. There's so much mystery here, stories left untold. What was the forge of the Crimson King that glowed on the horizon if you were looking out from Discordia? Why are the houses that mark the way along the Badlands so elongated? Who was the Crimson King? What's the deal with choking on a silver spoon? What's with all the American political posters? Why is there a sign welcoming Susanna Rowland and Oi quoting Neil Young by telling them to keep on rocking in the free world? They approach the castle and they are greeted by three beings that have taken the form of Stephen King. They tell Roland that the Crimson King had recently left to go reach the tower to beat Roland to it, which is confusing because hasn't he been in the tower? It's either a lie, which is plausible, or yet another example of the elasticity of time. Perhaps at the moment Roland arrives to the castle of the king, the Crimson King has just left, but throughout Roland's entire journey leading up to it, the Crimson King has been stuck on the tower for centuries. Is that confusing? It is confusing, but I think that, that speaks to the contradictory nature of the Dark Tower at this point. The three Stephen Kings turn out to simply be disguised Prime Minister and his two associates. The gunslingers kill two of them, leaving Rando Thoughtful, the Prime Minister, for Mordred. Chapter 4, Hides. Not only does the cold continue, but it intensifies. King does wonders at making the leg of this journey lonely and painful, even when there are moments of triumph, escaping the badlands into the forest, killing the deer, the process of tanning the deer is long and comes with little frustrations that the reader can feel, like the dozens of tiny cuts in Roland's hand as he fashions tiny needles from the bone. Like I said, all romanticism is gone from the text, and what's left is raw. Roland eats a deer kidney's raw, an act which makes him look like a monster. Susanna obsesses over the sore that's creeping on her face. The narrative at this point is meandering without any sense of tension or conflict. The tower is ahead, their friends are behind, and they're stuck in this not-quite-frozen limbo together. Chapter 5. Joe Collins of Odds Lane As they cross the White Lands, the end recalls the end of the stand, which also included a hundred pages of characters trudging through the snow after the conflict was over. The fairy tailing of the novel continues with their arrival to Odds Lane and Tower Road. The fact that the tower will stand at the end of a road called Tower Road feels too convenient, something more appropriate for a classic fairy tale. And Joe Collins' house is invocative of Hansel and Gretel. Joe Collins comes to greet them, and clearly something's up. He's too personable. Roland is too trusting. The whole thing plays out very, very dreamlike. Joe Collins' horse is a disturbing contrast to the Santa's village-like environment established by Collins, a sickly and malnourished blind thing that reeks of danger and harm. Joe then drops a familiar name upon the reader, Stuttering Bill, the robot that keeps maintenance for Joe. Stuttering Bill, of course, is known to constant readers as Bill Denbro, the leader of the losers and chief enemy to Pennywise the Dancing Clown. The mention of a character named Stuttering Bill should tip readers off that something's wrong with Joe Collins, whose scene should remind readers of Beverly Marsh's scene with Mrs. Kirsch. 
As Joe tells his story, Susanna begins to realize that he's lying. This, combined with the moaning that she heard, which she decides is not the wind, makes us get worried. While Susanna is in the bathroom because of her burst sore, she sees a note which refers to itself as the Deus Ex Machina. And at least King gets that out of the way and acknowledges it. <laughs> she then realizes that Odd Lane spells Dandelo, and Roland, outside the bathroom, is laughing too hard. Chapter 6, Patrick Danville. Joe Collins, Dandelo, is revealed to be a psychic vampire who is feeding off of Roland's emotions, and having grown younger, begins to transform, as Susanna sees it, into a psychotic clown. Now this is intentional, folks. A shout out to King's most famous psychotic clown, and I'll get to this more in my Easter egg section. And like the more famous clown, it's really an insect underneath. The note, it turns out, is from Stephen King himself, unsurprisingly, as he had already mentioned Deus Ex Machina. But what's fun about it is that we know the god in the machine, so this intervention is forgivable under the circumstances. Roland and Susanna find the hidden door to the cellar, giving the house, um, giving the house even more of a house on Nightbolt Street feel. And the fairy tale continues as they find the prisoner in the basement. That prisoner being Patrick Danville, the boy from Insomnia, now no longer a boy. Instead, he's a voiceless, tortured wreck of a young man. His tongue long since ripped from his mouth by Dandelo, who had fed from his laughter and tears, much like how Ordelia Lortz had fed off the tears and fear of the children in the library from the library policeman novella in Four Past Midnight. Just as in Insomnia, Patrick Danville is a master artist, and King's descriptions of his pictures are something that I wish an artist, Michael Whelan or someone else recreated. The ones he draws for Susanna and Roland feel very comic booky, which is something that I would love to see. King reminds readers that Oi is not safe when Patrick draws a picture of the Billy Bumbler and then crosses him out. Remember that back in Wizard and Glass, Roland had a vision of a Bumbler, our Bumbler, dying brutally. Part 5. The Scarlet Field of Kanka no Rei. We're getting into it, guys. Chapter 1. The Sore and the Door, Goodbye, My Dear. Stuttering Bill takes them to another Dogen and lets them know that they are a few days away from reaching the tower. Now, for the reader, at this point, we are about 100 pages left to go. And when Susanna thinks, I'm not ready, I think that she's speaking for all of us. We're 100 pages away. And here at the end, we aren't watching the triumphant victory of Roland, Susanna, Eddie, Jake, and Oi, but the strange limping stagger of three of the five members with a robot and a mute taking the place of our fallen heroes. Eddie and Jake's deaths had been a sudden and a surprise to the reader. With Susanna, it's different because she's receiving word from the two of them in her dreams that time is almost up and she, like us, will soon have to say goodbye to Roland. The truth of Patrick comes to us when Susanna realizes is that, she ha that he has a power through his drawing, and when he draws a portrait of her and erases the sore, the sore disappears from her face. She now knows how she will get home. It's not as tragic as their deaths, but depressing all the same. More important than that, it was unworthy 
of how much he had come to love and respect her. It broke what remained of his heart to think of bidding her goodbye, the last of his strange and wonderful quartet. But if it was what she wanted, what she needed, then he must do it. And he thought he could do it, for he had seen something about the young man's drawing that Susanna had missed. Not something that was there, something that wasn't. It's just so sad. I mean, Eddie's death and Jake's death were heartbreaking, soul-shattering, but this is just... This is just sad, guys. It's different. King really draws it out. Roland having Susanna ask Oi to come with her. And as I'll get to later, it... Wow, I mean, the F-bomb almost just came flying out of me. It's cruel that King hadn't let him do this. I hope that there's ever a movie or a television show made Oi goes through the door with her. He doesn't make it easy for us. And speaking of Oi, he, he, he gives us this moment where Oi seems as though he doesn't remember Jake. Oh, God. Seriously, which is unnecessary. And it just it's just so, so painful. It just hurts us when he writes stuff like that. It's a brutal goodbye with Roland completely losing his dignity and resorts to begging her to stay with him. And that might work, said he, speaking in the bitterest voice he ever heard. For the first ten years, or twenty, or even a hundred, and then, what about the rest of eternity? Think of Oi. Do you think he's forgotten Jake? Never, never, never in your life, never in his. He senses something's wrong. Susanna, don't. I beg you, don't go. I'll get on my knees if that will help. And to her horror, he began to do exactly that. It won't, she said. And if this is to be my last sight of you, my heart says it is. Don't let it be of you on your knees. You're not a kneeling man, Roland, son of Stephen. Never were, and I don't want to remember you that way. I want to see you on your feet, as you were in Calibrin Sturges, as you were with your friends at Jericho Hill. He got up and came to her. For a moment, she thought he meant to restrain her by force, and she was afraid. But he only put his hand on her arm for a moment, and then took it away. Let me ask you again, Susanna, are you sure? She conned her heart and saw that she was. She understood the risks, but yes, she was. And why? Because Roland's way was the way of the gun. Roland's way was death for those who rode or walked beside him. He had proved it over and over again since the earliest days of his quests. No, even before, since overhearing Hacks the Cook plotting treachery and thus assuring his death by the rope. It was all for the good, for what he called the white. She had no doubt of it, but Eddie still lay in his grave in one world and Jake in another. She had no doubt that much the same fate was waiting for Oi and for poor Patrick. Nor would their deaths be long in coming. I'm sure, she said. All right. Will you give me a kiss? She took him by the arm and pulled him down and put her lips on his. When she inhaled, she took in the breath of a thousand years and ten thousand miles. And yes, she tasted death. But not for you, gunslinger, she thought. For others, but never for you. May I escape your glamour. And may I do fine. She was the one who broke their kiss. Can you open the door for me, she asked. 
Roland went to it and took the knob in his hands, and the knob turned easily within his grip. Cold air puffed out, strong enough to blow Patrick's long hair back, and with it came a few flakes of snow. She could see grass that was still green beneath light frost and a path and an iron fence. Voices were singing, What child is this? just as in her dream. It could be Central Park. Yes, it could be. Central Park of some other world along the axis, perhaps, and not the one she came from, but close enough so that in time she would know no difference. Perhaps it was, as he said, a glamour. Perhaps it was the Todash darkness. It could be a trick, he said, most certainly reading her mind. Life is a trick. Love is a glamour, she replied. Perhaps we'll meet again at the clearing at the end of the path. As you say so, let it be so, he told her. He put out one leg, the run-down heel of his boot planted in the earth, and bowed to her. Oi had begun to weep, but he sat firmly beside the gunslinger's left boot. Goodbye, my dear. Goodbye, Roland. And she faced ahead, took in a deep breath, and twisted the cart's throttle. It rolled smoothlessly, I'm sorry, rode smoothly forward. Wait! Roland cried, but she never turned nor looked at him again. She rolled through the door. It slammed shut behind her at once with a flat, declamatory flap clap he knew all too well, one he'd dreamed of ever since his long and feverish walk across the edge of the western sea. The sound of singing was gone, and now there was the only lonely sound of the prairie wind. Roland of Gilead sat in front of the door, which already looked tired and unimportant. It would never open again. He put his face in his hands. It occurred to him that if he had never loved them, he would never have felt so alone as this. Yet of all his many regrets, the reopening of his heart was not among them, either now. Oof. <clears throat> Chapter 2. Mordred. We are coming very, very close to the end, and Roland fights off sleep knowing that Mordred waits in the wings, readying for that moment of vulnerability when Roland lets down his guard. Roland is awakened to the sound that we have all been dreading, the agonized cry of Oi. Oi dies a hero's death, attacking Mordred so that Roland may live, but it's excruciating. His back is snapped and he's impaled on a nearby tree branch. From there, there's no battle. It's not even a conflict. Mordred's death, just like his miserable life, is pathetic. He's dispatched easily by Roland and with three shots from the gun, he falls onto the fire, leaving Roland enough of an opportunity to do to Oi what he couldn't do to Jake in one of the most heartbreaking moments from the series on page 70. 771. The gunslinger let that thought go and went to the tree where the last of his cotet hung, impaled, but still alive. The gold-ringed eyes looked at Roland with what might almost have been weary amusement. Oi, Roland said, stretching out his hand, knowing it may be bitten and not caring in the least. He supposed that part of him and not a small one either, wanted to be bitten. Oi, we all say thank you. I say thank you, oi. 
The bumbler did not bite and spoke but one word. Olin, said he. Then he sighed, licked the gunslinger's hand a single time, hung his head down, and died. Oh, God. I mean, King speaks for all of us in that moment when he says, Oi, we all say thank you. And if Oi's death isn't enough, King continues to lay on the pain. On page 72, 772, he writes, What hurt most was remembering how unpleasantly he had spoken to Oi the day before. If he wanted to go with her, thee should have gone when thee had a chance. Had he stayed because he knew that Roland would need him, that when push came down to shove, Patrick would fail? Why will thee cast thy sad Hawkins eyes on me now? Because he had known it was to be his last day and his dying would be so hard. I think you knew both things, Roland said and closed his eyes so he could feel the fur beneath his hands better. I'm so sorry I spoke to you so. Would give the fingers on my good left hand if I could take the words back, so I would every one say true. But here, as in the Keystone world, time only ran one way. Done was done. There would be no taking back. And King knows how we feel. He's able to share the moment with us. Not as a character, but as a writer about to end a very long tale that means as much to him as it means to us. King knows how to frame a moment. Allows us to take a deep breath and paint a picture as vividly as anything by Michael Whelan. He writes, Chapter 3, The Crimson King and the Dark Tower. The road and the tale have both been long. Would you say so? The trip has been long and the cost has been high. But there's no great thing that was ever attained easily. A long tail, like a tall tower, must be built a stone at a time. Now, however, as the end draws closer, you must mark yon two travelers walking towards us with great care. The older man, he with the tanned-lined face and the gun on his hip, is pulling the cart they call Hofat too. The younger one, he with the oversized drawing pad tucked under his arm that makes him look like a student in the days of old, is walking along beside it. <clears throat> They are climbing a long, gently upsloping hill, not much different from the hundreds of others they have climbed. The overgrown road they follow is lined on either side with the remains of rock walls. Wild roses grow in amiable profusion amid the tumbles of fieldstone. In the open, brush-dotted land beyond these fallen, sunken walls are strange stone edifices. Some look like the ruins of castles. Others have the appearance of Egyptian obelisks. A few are clearly speaking rings of the sort where demons may be summoned. One ancient ruin of stone pillars and plinths has the look of Stonehenge. One almost expects to see hooded druids gathered in the center of that great circle, perhaps casting the runes, but the keeper of these monuments and the precursors of the great monument are all gone. Only a small herd of bannock greys where once they worshipped. Never mind, it's not old ruins we've come to observe near the end of our long journey, but the old gunslinger pulling the handles of the cart. We stand at the crest of the hill and wait as he comes towards us. He comes and comes, relentless as ever, a man who always learns to speak the language of the land, at least some of it, and the customs of the country. 
He is still a man who would straighten pictures in a strange hotel room. Much about him has changed, but not that. He crests the hill so close to us now that we can smell the sour tang of his sweat. He looks up, a quick and automated glance he shoots first ahead and then to either side as he tops any hill. Always con your vantage was Court's rule, and the last of his pupils had still not forgotten it. He looks up without interest, looks down, and stops. After a moment of staring at the broken, weed-infested paving of the road, he looks up again, more slowly this time. Much more slowly, as if in dread of what he thinks he has seen. And it's here we must join him, sink into him. Although how will we ever con the vantage of Roland's heart at such a moment as this, when the single-minded goal of his lifetime at last comes in sight is more than this poor excuse for a story man can ever tell. Some moments are beyond imagination. At long last, Roland is able to see the Dark Tower. One step after the next allows him one step closer, the tower growing closer on the horizon. There are artifacts of untold stories that line the road. Stone soldiers painted red, the Stonehenge stones, the speaking rings, the pyramids line the path. Who put them there and how they came to be abandoned are never told and they're not meant for us to know. And after a couple of decades, we get her first description of the Dark Tower, the physical object, the real Dark Tower, not anyone in a dream. Below them, was a great blanket of red that stretched to the horizon in every direction. The road cut through it, a dusty white line perfectly straight and perhaps 12 feet wide. In the middle of the rose field stood the sooty dark gray tower, just as it had stood in his dreams. Its windows gleamed in the sun. Here the road split and made a perfect white circle around the tower's base to continue on the other side in a direction Roland believed was now dead east instead of south by east. Another road ran off at right angles to the tower road, to the north and south, if he was right in believing that the points of this compass had been reestablished. From above, the dark tower would look like the center of a blood-filled gun sight. And then we get the long-awaited confrontation between Roland and the Crimson King, which is comically unsatisfying. In the end, it's not about good versus evil, as Roland was never thoroughly good. It's more along the lines of obsession versus obsession, two spoiled children fighting over the toy they both believe belongs to them. Now, I've talked about the Crimson King in episodes leading up to this, and discussed the jarring presentation of the character who screams, eee! and spouts out generic evil lines like, Now you die! And come out and play! We get our first real look at the Crimson King on page 785. He leaned to the corner of the pyramid, plucked up the binoculars, braced them on a convenient spur of rock, and looked through them for his enemy. The Crimson King almost jumped at him, and for once in his life, Roland saw exactly what he had imagined. An old man with an enormous nose, hooked and waxy, red lips that bloomed in the snow of a luxuriant beard, snowy hair that spilled down the Crimson King's back almost all the way to his scrawny bottom. His pink-flushed face peered towards the pilgrims. The king wore a, red, a robe of red, brilliant red, 
sorry, a, the king wore a robe of brilliant red dotted here and about with lightning strokes and cabalistic symbols. To Susanna, Eddie, and Drake, he would have looked like Father Christmas. To Roland, he looked like he was. Hell incarnate. And who would have thought <laughs> that when we came to the end, it would come down to Harry Potter, golden snitches, and a boy who could draw really well. Patrick draws the Crimson King, but needs the color red to finish his eyes. Roland grabs a nearby rose, which nearly tears off one of his remaining fingers. This is yet another clue pointing that things are not going to end well for him. If this is the tower's response to touching its property. And as for the end, King really starts to lay down the seeds for it, with the tower whispering that there would be renewal, that he would be whole again. If Roland is promised to become whole, the Crimson King is going to become less, as Patrick erases what he's just finished drawing, leaving only the glaring red eyes. And here we are, everyone. The last obstacle is removed. All that's left are the two images that ever mattered to this series, the Gunslinger and the Dark Tower. Everything else, the Man in Black, the boy, the peer, the lady of shadows, the pusher, the prisoner, the ageless stranger, the good man, the girl at the window, everything else is secondary to this. And after 22 years, after Roland's first quest saw publication, he has finally arrived at his destination, and we along with him. He sends Patrick back where they had come from, so that stuttering Bill can help him find a door and lets him know that he can always make a door. From there, it's time for Roland to take hold of his destiny. And then we begin. All right, I go. Long days and pleasant nights. May we meet in the clearing at the end of the path when all worlds end. Yet even then, he knew this would not happen, for the worlds would never end, not now, and for him there would be no clearing. For Roland the Shane of Gilead, last of Eld's line, the path ended at the Dark Tower, and that did him fine. He rose to his feet. The boy looked up at him with wide, wondering eyes, clutching his pad. Roland turned. He drew in breath to the bottom of his lungs and let it out in a great cry. Now comes Roland to the Dark Tower. I have been true, and I still carry the gun of my father, and you will open to my hand. Patrick watched him stride to where the road ended, a black silhouette against that bloody burning sky. He watched as Roland walked among the roses and sat shivering in the shadows as Roland began to cry the names of his friends and loved ones and comrades. Those names carried clear in that strange air, as if they would echo forever. I come in the name of Stephen Deshane, he of Gilead. I come in the name of Gabriel Deshane, she of Gilead. I come in the name of Cortland Andrus, he of Gilead. I come in the name of Cuthbert Allgood, he of Gilead. I come in the name of Elaine Johns, he of Gilead. I come in the name of Jamie DeCurry, he of Gilead. I come in the name of Vinay the Wise, he of Gilead. I come in the name of Hacks of the Cook, he of Gilead. I come in the name of David the Hawk, he of Gilead and the sky. I come in the name of Susan Delgado, she of Mehis. I come in the name of Shimi Ruiz, he of Mehis. I come in the name of Pierre Callahan, he of Jerusalem's lot and the roads. 
I come in the name of Ted Brodigan, he of America. I come in the name of Dinky Earnshaw, he of America. I come in the name of Aunt Talitha, she of River Crossing, and will lay her cross here as I was bid. I come in the name of Stephen King, he of Maine. I come in the name of Oi, the brave, he of Midworld. I come in the name of Eddie Dean, he of New York. I come in the name of Susanna Dean, she of New York. I come in the name of Jake Chambers, he of New York, whom I call my own true son. I am Roland of Gilead, and I come as myself. You will open to me. After that came the sound of a horn. It simultaneously chilled Patrick's blood and exalted him. The echoes faded into silence. Then, perhaps a minute later, came a great echoing boom. The sound of a door swinging shut forever. After that came silence. Patrick sat where he was at the base of the pyramid, shivering until Old Star and Old Mother rose in the sky. The song of the roses in the tower hadn't ceased, but it had grown low and sleepy, little more than a murmur. At last he went back to the road, gathered as many whole cans as he could. There was a surprising number of them, considering the force of the explosion that had demolished the cart, and found a deerskin sack that would hold them. He realized he had forgotten his pencil and went back to get it. Besides the pencil, gleaming in the starlight was Roland's watch. The boy took it with a small and nervous hoot of glee. He put it in his pocket. Then he went back to the road and slung his little sack of gunna over his shoulder. I can tell you that he walked until nearly midnight, and that he looked at the watch before taking his rest. I can tell you the watch had stopped completely. I can tell you that, come noon the following day, he looked at it again and saw that it had begun to run in the correct direction once more, albeit very slowly. But of Patrick I can tell you no more. Not whether he made it back to the Federal, not whether he found stuttering Bill that was, not whether he eventually came once more to America side. I can tell you none of these things, say sorry. Here the darkness hides him from my storyteller's eye, and he must go on alone. Roland calling the names. Whew, guys, I mean, that gives me goosebumps. It's a wonderful moment. And an interesting decision for King to present this long-awaited moment through the eyes of another character, and not through the eyes of Roland. This should have been our first clue that we weren't really being given the end, not the true end, that he was faking us out. Epilogue. Before we begin examining the text, we have to take a moment to take in this picture of a hand offering to Susanna's a cup of hot chocolate. And after all of the death and the supposed end of Roland himself, the fact that the epilogue is entitled Susanna in New York and the image is that of her dreams, it should fill the reader with hope. Hope that in all of the bleakness and tragedy, that there will be something good. Susanna has passed through the door and does what Roland could not do himself. She chooses life and love and ka over the way of the gunslinger. Just as Roland had a choice between his ka and the tower and chose the tower, she has a choice between the gun and the man she loves and chooses the man. She throws away Roland's gun into the trash, which is a very sad ending for such a storied object and foreshadowing to the true fate of its original owner. King isn't heartless, though. 
and gives us an incredibly, incredibly bittersweet reunion between our characters on page 810. Her throat is terribly dry, but the words come out at least. She takes the cup from him and sips the hot chocolate through the cream. It is sweet and good, a taste of this world. Then the sound of honking cabs, their drivers hurrying to make their day before the snow shuts them down, is equally good. Grinning, he reaches out and wipes a tiny dab of the cream from the tip of her nose. His touch is electric, and she sees that he feels it too. It occurs to her that he's going to kiss her again for the first time, and sleep with her again for the first time, and fall in love with her again for the first time. He may know those things because voices have told him, but she knows them for a far better reason, because those things have already happened. Ka is a wheel, Roland had said, and now she knows it's true. And we learn that the reunion is not limited to Eddie and Susanna, but to Jake as well, who has been reborn in this new world as Eddie's brother. And then King gives us our fake out ending on page 813. And when the fingers close over hers, she thinks she will die of joy. She will have many questions, so will they, but for the time being she has only one that feels important. As the snow begins to fall more thickly around them, landing in his hair and in his lashes and on the shoulders of his sweatshirt, she asks it. You and Jake, what's your last name? Torin, he says. It's German. And before either of them can say anything else, Jake joins them. And will I tell you that these three lived happily ever after? I will not, for no one ever does. But there was happiness, and they did live. Beneath the flowing and sometimes glimpsed glamour of the beam that connects Shardik the bear and Maturin the turtle by way of the dark tower, they did live. That's all. That's enough. Say thank you. But that's not the ending! King is not going to be that kind to us, and he's not going to be that kind to Roland. He's going to continue because he knows what ending the right ending is, even if it's the most horribly depressing one he could give. King gives us a very brief essay on endings and how unsatisfying it is for those who focus on the ending, the destination, rather than the journey. And don't we know someone who focused on the destination rather than the journey? Somebody? As we read this, the novel we thought was over picks up once again. He's making this one incredible reading experience and gives us the true ending with the preface, there's no such thing as a happy ending. I have never met a single one equal to once upon a time. Endings are heartless. Ending is just another word for goodbye. It's all happened before and will happen again. How many times has Roland been on this loop? We'll never know. Enough for him to receive what he believes were dreams and premonitions, which were, in fact, just memories of lives that he's lived, making the same mistakes over and over and over again, this life's mistake being the horn he never picked up. This will be his correction on the next go-around. And what after that? Jake's death? And Roland believes the Crimson King, now without a body, is both stuck on the balcony and free to wander the worlds and the spaces between the worlds, which is the depiction, the depiction we were given in Insomnia. Are the fields of Kanka no Re outside of time? 
So when the Crimson King set from the castle of the Crimson King to reach the tower, though it might have only been weeks before, has the Crimson King now been stuck on the balcony for an entire eternity? Is his spirit already at work in the past, gathering the Kantoi, the Tahin, the Grandfathers, and the Breakers to free him from his self-induced prison? King continues to tease Roland's grim fate with the constant mention of the scent of alkali, which invokes the Mohane Desert where it all began for us. Roland makes his way up the tower, each floor containing a recreation of a moment of his life. And though it's night outside, the light coming through the windows is sunlight as he makes his way closer and closer to the moment when he's reinserted into the narrative in the Mohane Desert. And the passageway has become narrow. King goes so far as to refer to it as narrow as a coffin. And then he opens the final door. He saw and understood at once the knowledge falling upon him in a hammer blow, hot as the sun of the desert that was the apotheosis of all deserts. How many times had he climbed these stairs only to find himself peeled back, curved back, turned back, not to the beginning, when things might have been changed and time's curse lifted, but to that moment in the Mohane Desert where he had finally understood that this thoughtless, questionless quest would ultimately succeed? How many times had he traveled a loop like the one in the clip that had once pinched off his navel, his own ka tet kan gan? How many times would he travel it? Oh no, he screamed, please not again, have pity, have mercy! The hands pulled him forward regardless. The hands of the tower knew no mercy. They were the hands of Gan, the hands of Ka, and they knew no mercy. He smelled alkali, bitter as tears. The desert beyond the door was white, blinding, waterless, without feature save for the faint, cloudy haze of the mountains which sketched themselves on the horizon. The smell beneath the alkali was that of the devil grass, which brought sweet dreams, nightmares, death. But not for you, gunslinger. Never for you. You, Darkle. You, Tinked. May I be brutally frank? You go on. And each time, you forget the last time. For you, each time is the first time. He made one final effort to draw back. Hopeless. Ka was stronger. Roland of Gilead walked through the last door, the one he always sought, the one he always found. Closed gently behind him. Now back in the desert, we see that he has the horn of Arthur Eld and the voice of Gon tells him that this is the promise that things could be different, that Roland could perhaps find salvation if he stands true. And then, and then he gives us the real ending, the final ending, the frustrating ending, but the incredibly right ending, the one we should have seen coming. For a novel about Ka, it's the only ending that we could have been given. He shook his head to clear it, thought of taking another sip of water and dismissed the idea. Tonight, when he built his campfire over the bones of Walter's fire, then he would drink. As for now, he would resume his journey. Somewhere ahead was the dark tower. Closer, however much closer, was a man. Was he a man? Was he really? Who could perhaps tell him how to get there? Roland would catch him, and when he did, 
That man would talk. I, yes, Yar, tell it on the mountain as you'd hear it in the valley. Walter would be caught and Walter would talk. Roland touched the horn again, and its reality was oddly comforting, as if he had never touched it before. Time to get moving. The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. Much has been made about the ending of this book. The ending ending, this coda that gives Roland's perspective of entering the tower, is one of the most memorable endings he's crafted in any of his books. And endings are tough, guys. Entire works are judged by the creator's ability to end it, which is absurd. But even though it's absurd, it's something that is still on the mind of the creator as they head towards it. Now, don't worry. I'm pretty sure King knew you wanted a good ending. We all did. I'm sure he did, too. And if we were given an ending where the entire quartet faced down the Crimson King and entered the tower together, would you really have liked it? Would it have felt right? Of course not. If at any point during this, if you felt sad or hurt or frustrated at the ending, that's good! You should feel on edge as Roland walks those stairs. You should feel lonely as he's surrounded by reminders of a life that he dedicated to the pursuit of the tower. A pursuit that was all-consuming that he wound up inside the tower. Get it? It literally consumed him. It's a lonely ending. He's the last survivor of his home. Both of his quartet are long gone. And he learns the hard way of what happens when you focus on the destination rather than the journey. What feels so right about it, aside from the fact that it's the full realization of the concept of Ka is a wheel, for a novel that has dealt with the writer as much as it has, it's a great way for King to comment on one aspect of his writing philosophy because for him, it's never been about the ending of a book. He's never been one to lock himself into a destination and his work, his characters, to a fixed point. Instead, he's always been a writer who crafts rich characters and let them guide him along. He never worries about where his characters are going to be. He just focuses on where they are. Okay, guys. Now I want to talk. I just want to give a breakdown um, of this novel. Let's talk about... Eddie. I still remember it reading this, not believing it, and purposefully choosing to not accept it. This was not what King had suggested. At this point, there had been some belief that Roland would die in his quest, and the rest of the quartet would carry on in his footsteps, Eddie rising to the role of the quartet's din. Roland himself believed that this was a strong possibility, especially with the growing pain in his hip and his head. What if Roland had died from a gunshot because his once lightning reflexes were no longer superhuman, but instead failingly human? There was the vision of Oi and Merlin's grapefruit. He saw a vision of the Billy Bumbler dead. We've grown to love this little guy, so if he died, then that would take away the need to kill anyone else, right? Then, of course, you also have the previous novel entitled Song of Susanna. Leading up to the publication of that book, we were convinced that Susanna was going to die. She was pregnant with a demon's child, and the book was entitled Song of Susanna, which implies, through omission, the swan song of Susanna. And King had to have known what he was doing, which is fitting, 
because he's Roland's twinner, after all, and Roland has proven himself to be a deadly player of the game of castles, a game which King played with us, a game which at this moment we realized we lost. It was supposed to be Roland. It was supposed to be Susanna. It was supposed to be Oi. It was not. It was not supposed to be Eddie. Until this point, the series could be interpreted as Eddie's story. So how could we ever believe for a second that he would be the one to die? And even if he was going to die, it couldn't be like this. Unheroically ambushed. An undeserved death. A sloppy death. King even addresses the fan belief that there would be death in the series, but only at the very end. No, that can't be. Eddie, Eddie! And besides, he's Cotet. He might die when we reach the tower. We might all die when we get there, but not now, not here. That's crazy. If fans were upset when they were denied a confrontation between Flag and Roland, then this is where they really start to turn on the author. By the end of this book, we're going to want to lynch him. I remember the feelings I originally had when reading this. Eddie can't die. We've waited decades for the conclusion of this book. Endings are supposed to give satisfaction. They're not supposed to make us feel this way. But that's not true. There is nothing written in stone that says that an ending is supposed to make us feel good. Or even that we're supposed to be rewarded for our reading. In this case, we're punished for it. And God bless him for doing this because, guys, he does it so well. We have been the unofficial last member of this quartet for years. So why shouldn't this be anything other than devastating? Remember, at this point, King alleged that he was going to retire. That's a death. That's a death of writing. And death permeates this novel. In life, death is not given on a grand stage like a blockbuster movie. It's sad. It destroys us. It makes us angry and lonely and hurt and confused, frustrated and empty inside. From this point forward of the novel, after Eddie's death, the novel itself invokes those feelings. The last half of the novel is less of an adventure and more along the lines of a funeral procession. The death itself was foreshadowed when Roland recounted the death of Cuthbert and Wolves of the Kala. Remember that Eddie is the reincarnation of Cuthbert Allgood, and while I loved Roland's original best friend, there isn't a real reason to give him any conclusion in our current narrative because his life and death has no bearing on our characters. So showing Cuthbert in his final moments feels like foreshadowing of Eddie's death, just another way of linking these two characters together. And King wrote on many occasions that Cuthbert would die talking. And what happens? Eddie won't shut up. It's creepy, it's disturbing, but his brain is just been blown to bits and his, his mouth just won't stop babbling. It's the realization of Cuthbert's projected end. Okay, guys, and let's talk about Jake. If we didn't think that Eddie was going to die, we certainly didn't think that Jake was going to die. And this one's brutal. I mean, by the end, it's almost, it's almost this dark comedy that he winds up becoming the equivalent of Kenny from South Park in the Stephen King universe. I mean, the kid died not once, but three times. And the fact that he dies the way that he does is so heartbreaking. It's just cruel on King's part. The fact that he's not even able to say goodbye to his father, that Roland isn't able to say goodbye, and he leaves behind Oi. And then we see the, 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 the haunting memory of Jake every time we see Oi's 
tearful eyes. It's just painful. It's harsh. But there's no denying the symmetrical beauty of the fact that he died by a car crash. Think about that, guys. I've talked before in the podcast about how the events of the Dark Tower series have seismic and cosmic repercussions that every action that takes place here has a a ripple and an echo that just bounce throughout time and space so it's as if this was the moment that it was Ka that Jake was supposed to die at that moment die by a car crash and so if that's the moment if that's the stone that gets thrown in the pool then it ripples outwards forwards and backwards in time and so if it goes backwards in time then Jake's first death is just a recreation of his true death. And I like how it makes us hate Stephen King. I mean, we hate we hate the writer for what he's doing to us here. And we he actually gives us he gives us an, a reason to to hate him by hating the actual character. It's just all of it works so well. You might be mad at him, you might curse him, you might throw the book across the room, vow to yourself you're never going to read it, and never read another Stephen King novel again. Like, yeah, sure, okay, but King does it so well, you can't argue that. You, you don't necessarily have to like it, you don't necessarily have to be filled with good feelings, but you can't deny that he's doing a great job at killing off his characters, and Jake is the best one that he kills off. Now, Susanna... This is a long and strange and terrible novel for Susanna. First, her surrogate gives birth to a monster child, and she loses her husband and Jake. In my review of Wizard in Glass, in a bonus episode, I wondered if Susanna is the reincarnation of Susan, the way that Eddie had been with Cuthbert. There's certainly reasons to believe this. I mean, no one quite understood Roland the way that Susanna did. On the go-around of Ka, Susanna represents the life a little bit further down the line where Susan had been. Susan was a girl. Susanna is a woman. The girl had fallen in love with Roland. The woman fell in love with Eddie. Both were robbed. The girl with her life. The woman of the love of her life. Susanna gives birth not to the demon's child, not to Eddie's child, but to Roland's child. And remember that when Susan had died, she was pregnant with Roland's son. It makes sense in a weird Dark Tower logic kind of way that centuries later, that child, from a symbolic standpoint, is finally born. So it should be no surprise that it comes out a monster. Furthermore, when Roland's about to re-enter Endworld, after having bid goodbye to both Eddie and Jake, he thinks of his mother and children, and then thinks of Susanna, the mother of his child. All right, guys, let's talk about Walter Paddock. Throughout the novel, the threat of Walter, actually to back it up a little bit, I mean, yeah, I'm going to talk, I'm going to call him Walter, but that's not how we first met him. We first met him with the initials RF in the pages of the much beloved stand. And from there, he popped up like this mischievous little imp in book to book to book, causing havoc wherever he went. And with every publication of the Dark Tower, he would show up in some incarnation, and the fanboys in all of us, they would get super excited and wonder what his ultimate fate was and what his role would be in the grand conclusion of the Dark Tower. And throughout this novel, the threat of Walter builds and builds. From the underlings at the Dixie Pig frightened, some even committing suicide at the thought of a wrathful flag. 
His absence is a heavy cloud that hangs on every page. He's like a shark in the water. Yes, you can't see the fin, but that's worse because you're never sure when it's going to swim up beneath you and eat you whole. It's why Eddie in Maine jumps when the kids light off firecrackers. He expects to see flags standing there. In my review of The Stand, I described him as the adult boogeyman, an outsider threatening our sense of order and logic. Here, he's the renegade wizard, the unpredictable madman who could turn up at any minute. King knows the character's popularity and whips his fans into a salivating frenzy at the thought of this longtime King character finally taking center stage in the Dark Tower series. And when he finally shows up, He's quickly swept from the board forever, his arrogance being his downfall. Though his departure is a disappointment, you have to love that he bragged about wearing an anti-telepathic device in his hood that kept out Mordred's thoughts, even though Mordred could, could hear him the entire time. Ultimately, there's a dark beauty in Flag's final moments. So much of the stand had been dedicated to Flag's desire to have a child. And here, he faces off against the most deadly child in the multiverse and loses badly. Like, really badly, guys. But first, before that, we actually get a little glimpse into the life of the old wizard. Beginning on page 174. He had belonged to none of the cliques and cults and faiths and factions that had arisen in the confused years since the tower began to totter, although he wore their sigils when it suited him. His service to the Crimson King was a late thing, as was his service to John Farson, the good man, who'd brought down Gilead, the last bastion of civilization and a tide of blood and murder. Walter had done his own share of murder in those years, living a long and only quasi-mortal life. He had witnessed the end of what he had then believed to be Roland's last quartet at Jericho Hill. Witnessed it? That was a little over-modest by all the gods and fishes. Under the name of Rudin Filaro, he had fought with his face painted blue, had screamed and charged with the rest of the stinking barbarians, and had brought down Cuthbert Allgood himself with an arrow through the eye. Yet through all that, he kept his gaze on the tower. Perhaps that was why the damned gunslinger, as the sun went down on that day's work, Roland of Gilead had been the last of him, had been able to escape, having buried himself in a cart filled with the dead and then creeping out of the slaughter pile at sundown just before the whole works had been set alight. He had seen Roland years earlier in Mayhees, and had just missed his grip on him there too, although he had put that mostly down to Eldred Jonas, he of the quavery voice and the long gray hair, and Jonas had paid. The king had told him then that they weren't done with Roland, that the gunslinger would begin the end of matters and ultimately cause the tumble that which he wished to save. Walter hadn't begun to believe that until the Mohane Desert, where he had looked around one day and discovered a certain gunslinger on his back trail, one who had grown old over the course of the fallen years and hadn't completely believed in it until the reappearance of Mia, who fulfilled an old and grave prophecy by giving birth to the Crimson King's son. Certainly the old red thing was of no more use to him, but even in his imprisonment and insanity, he, it, was still dangerous. Still, until he had Roland to complete him, to make him greater than his own destiny perhaps, 
Walter O'Dim had been little more than a wanderer left over from the old days, a mercenary with a vague ambition to penetrate the tower before it was brought down. Was that not what had brought him to the Crimson King in the first place? Yes. And it wasn't his fault that the great scuttering Spider King had run mad. Never mind. Here was his son with the same mark on his heel. Walter could see it at this very moment, and everything balanced. Of course, he'd have to be careful. The thing in the chair looked helpless, perhaps even thought it was helpless. But it wouldn't do to underestimate it just because it looked like a baby. King's intent in this moment is to completely tear down this character. Every boogeyman quality is thoroughly dismantled to the point of hilarity. From his obliviousness of the peanut butter stuck to his teeth, the slobbish moments before his death as he spits out crackers all over himself, the fact that he was wearing a broken telepathy blocker on his head, to his exaggerated and undeserved sense of importance as he monologues about Roland giving him purpose. I couldn't help but laugh when, when Mordred gives him the mental equivalent of both eye-rolling and a raised eyebrow and lets him j uh, live just a little bit longer to see what the fool will say next. For fans waiting for Flag to have his big villainous moment, it never comes. His biggest moment is being forced to rip out his eyes and stick out his tongue for the spider to eat. As you know, Flag was a personal favorite character of mine, and the anticipation of his inclusion in the story was one of the primary reasons I kept anticipating the next installment, because every new installment had the potential to reveal Flag at his most dastardly. Again, that never happens, and while I hated it upon first reading, my reasoning wasn't valid enough to stand up to critique. Simply, I hadn't wanted Flag to die like that, but honestly, this is a perfect death for this character, because he doesn't deserve a grand showdown with the Gunslinger. It's hilarious and pathetic that he convinced himself that he was a major player in the game, this confrontation show that he's nothing but a used car salesman that convinced himself that the lemons on his lot were the best cars in town. It may not be the ending that you wanted, but it is a fitting ending for this loathsome creature, which is now the second fitting ending to a character in this book, the first having been Callahan. King isn't out to make friends in this book. He's out to tell the final chapter, and he's going to do it with authenticity. Every character's death or end may not be enjoyable, but it feels right. Except Oi. That's just cruel for the sake of being cruel, but I'm going to talk about that later. So in the end, Flag states that he isn't John Farson, that he killed Cuthbert Allgood, and that he has been working with the Crimson King for that long, which makes sense, as his role in the stand and in Eyes of the Dragon present different motivations. He was the terrifying dark man to the free zone in the post-apocalyptic America, sure, but here he's just a bloviating windbag. <laughs> and though we don't get a lot of his backstory, we get a little, as Mordred dismisses his involvement. You may not have been his greatest enemy, Walter Paddock, as you were called when you set out all in the long ago, but you were his oldest, I grant, and now I take you out of his road. Walter did not realize he held on some dim hope of escape even when the loathsome thing before him reared up, the eyes staring at him with dull avidity while the mouth drooled until he heard, for the first time in a thousand years, the name of a boy from a farm in the lane had one answered to, Walter Paddock, Walter, son of Sam the Miller in the Eastern Barony, he who had run away at thirteen, 
had been raped in the ass by another wanderer a year later and yet yet somehow withstood the temptation to go crawling back home. Instead, he had moved on towards his destiny. Walter Paddock At the sound of that voice, the man who had sometimes called himself Martin, Richard Fannin, Rudin Folaro, and Randall Flagg, among a great many others, gave over all hope, except for the hope of dying well. So what to make of the tiny glimpse of his origin? Whatever his end may be, I want to know Flagg's story. I want to know what set him on his path, the son of a miller. It must have been greed and the want of dark arts. What was Flagg's quest before he became an untethered, directionless troublemaker? What were the big beats in his life, which is first described as a quasi-immortal, then mocked for the absurdity of the phrase itself? I don't know if I have mentioned it in a previous episode or not, but... With King having just finished Doctor Sleep a few years back, he's proven that he doesn't have issues going back to stories long thought told. Jack Sawyer and Father Callahan are clearly two examples of this. I would love, absolutely love, the ultimate tale of Randall Flagg, the character completely demystified. He's been presented throughout King's run as a villain. I'd love for King to do what Anne Rice had done with the vampire Lestat and show that this character wasn't evil, just misunderstood. Clearly, the audience would know he's evil, but if told through Flagg's perspective, his obliviousness to his true nature would make for a fun and probably funny read. Give us the long history of all world through the eyes of this character, chronicling, chronicling the rise and fall of the old ones, his dreams of power. What adventures did he have along his path as he built his magic abilities? Tell me you wouldn't love to see him run across the peddler whose story is mythologized in both the moon and in Needful Things as Leland Gaunt. Anyway, guys, just because he wanted a greater end doesn't mean that he deserved one. And whether you were disappointed that his fate ended before Roland could put a bullet through his grinning teeth, you can't deny that having his eyes and tongue eaten by a monster spider baby before being sucked dry is a legendary ending both glamorous and undignified at the same time. The fact that he can be described as a legendary feast is dismissive of the character, which again is a wonderful thing. And I guess that in the end, we finally get to see who will win in a fight. Randall Flagg or Pennywise the Dancing Clown? Maybe not Pennywise, but the spider at least. One interpretation of the works of Stephen King is that Mordred's existence inspired King subconsciously to write the spider It in the first place, so posing the scene as an all-star battle is completely appropriate. My final word on it is that it's fun, frustrating, funny, and gruesome. It's a memorable ending to a memorable character. And while we're at it, let's talk about Mordred. Ah, Mordred. What a despised character within King's bibliography, huh? I'm partially to blame for that. I mean, when I first read The Dark Tower, I hated Mordred. Since The Wastelands, there was so much promise for what this character could have been. The child of a demon? What would that look like? What would that be like? I don't think anyone would have imagined it was a sad and miserable adolescent like we got in the pages of The Dark Tower. But just because the character isn't what we wanted isn't an effective form of critique, because that's not fair to what Stephen King was doing with this character, who works effectively within the narrative. As I've stated in other, re other reviews, by the time Roland reaches the tower, King makes the argument that there's no such thing as ultimate evil. There's no Wizard of Oz, just the man behind the curtain. 
The character, the Crimson King, who was built up to be King's version of Satan, is simply a powerless old man locked within the object of his greed. Similarly, Mordred isn't Damien Thorne or Rosemary's baby. He's not the chosen one or a mythological figure. He's more along the lines of the creature from Frankenstein, an outcast designed by a world that will always hate and fear him. Mordred is a dark mirror to the life that Roland has lived, and it's karmic justice, or Ka, that he's the one that finally makes Roland's final leg of the journey a solo mission once again. If anything, Mordred is the personification of his father's soul, corrupted, wounded, monstrous. Remember that Mordred is a spider, and what do spiders do but trap their prey upon their webbing, much like how Roland has trapped his friends and loved ones upon the webbing of his quest for the Dark Tower. If the Dark Tower is to Stephen King what Lord of the Rings had been to Tolkien, then Mordred serves as his golem, the pitiful yet dangerous creature stalking our heroes. If you think about it, Mordred serves zero purpose in this story. He's a completely unloaded pistol. If you think about expectations and tropes set within this type of genre, you expect Mordred to play a major role by the end of the novel. It's hard not to imagine him scurrying into the cave outside the thunderclap before the attack on Aljulciental throwing off their plans, or interfering during the attack. But if you think about it, all he does is kill Oi. And I'll get to that, but the death of Oi, while affecting the reader's mood, does not change the flow of the story at that point. Oi could have stayed alive, and the progression of the novel would have remained the same, whether Oi died impaled on a tree branch or whether or not Patrick took him away while Roland entered the tower does not really matter. The end result is that Mordred was a lame duck character, and I love it. Although he's pathetic, King's descriptions of him were incredibly effective. When King wants him to be monstrous, he's thoroughly monstrous. When he wants us to feel sympathy for him, we certainly do. Though he wasn't able to significantly impact the story, his inclusion into our story is a welcome one, and I enjoyed the time we spent with him. Okay, guys, it is time. It's time to talk about something I don't want to, but I'm going to. Now look, I can accept a lot of things about this book. The death of Eddie, the third death of Jake, the goodbye of Susanna, the fact that Randall Flagg goes out like a punk. The fact that Mordred is just a miserable character. I can accept all of these things. But this, guys, seriously. This is seriously just cruel. And King... And that's how I feel about how you treat Oi. When Oi was introduced in the Wastelands, we automatically fell in love with the little guy. And King cemented that love when he dangled the terrified, vulnerable little creature over a bridge. When I read Wastelands for the first time, I fully expected Oi to die. Nothing was set in stone, and for a series that had begun with the sacrifice of Jake, I knew that no one was safe. But King saved Oi from that moment, and I feel that if he was going to save him then, he should have stayed safe. I know that that's an absurd thing to say. And it's ridiculous to argue that King has any right to protect a character just so the reader doesn't feel sad. I fully acknowledge that, but come on. Everything about Oi in this book is one heartbreak after the other after the other. And who would have thought that Jake would be the one to die and Oi to be the one left behind? I think that we all expected Oi to die, which would function as one step that Jake has to take into adulthood, like I said before. But no, Jake dies, and we get to experience the constant heartbreak every time King references the character's sad golden eyes, every lonesome howl, every time he cries, ache, ache, 
when Jake dies, when he goes mute the moment Susanna is sure that he's forgotten Jake, and the fact that he knows he's going to die, and the last thing that Roland said to him was out of anger. Jake and Eddie were enough, but I think that there's something sadistic about the death of Oi. There was a moment in the long-running comic book Sandman, written by Neil Gaiman, where he teased the death of a similar character to Oi in a very similar fashion. The main character has a vision of that character's death. Except before um, the time that Neil Gaiman arrived to that point, his editor begged him to let the character live because she believed it would be a bit too much. And I think that she actually named her son after that character because she had loved the character so much. Now, I imagine that there's a lot of dogs and a lot of cats out there named Oi because of how much the reader base fell in love with our little Billy Bumbler. The difference between Stephen King and Neil Gaiman is that Neil Gaiman let his character live, and King kept up with his plan to kill Oi. Though I accept most of King's choices in the novel, this is one that I simply can't accept. I can't approach it from any sort of objective perspective. I just, I don't approve it. I don't approve of Oi's death. I am always going to be far too emotional to be able to think objectively about it. And then Patrick Danville. Patrick Danville finally returns the story and fulfills the promise that one day he would save the life of a great man. But here he does something much greater. He defeats the Crimson King. The ending is absolutely absurd. And for people that have wanted a showdown between Roland and the Crimson King, Patrick Danville robs the audience of Roland's conquering of the evil character. But remember, Roland's quest was never to defeat the Crimson King. It was only ever to reach the tower. So the fact that someone else defeats the Crimson King is fine with me. And what's better is that it is at the hands of the artist. And why shouldn't it be? Stephen King inserted himself into the narrative after all. And hadn't one of the Dark Tower's most memorable qualities have been the illustrations in every installment? Patrick Danville is the stand-in for Michael Whelan, Phil Hale, Ned Dameron, Dave McKean, Bernie Wrightson, and Daryl Anderson. Over the years, each of these artists contributed to the creation of the Tower. They helped bring the universe to life, whether it be Ned Dameron's depiction of Eddie lying in Odetta's chair while Roland lays slumped on the ground in front of an open beachway door, or Roland, recently mangled from the lobstrosities holstering his gun, or Phil Hale's incredible two-page spread of Charlie the Choo Choo. Phil Hale, the first artist to give us the image of the Dark Tower standing in Cancan no Rey. Or the weird, abstract images of Dave McKean that invoke feeling rather than just an image. Or Bernie Wrightson depicting the classic image of Susanna hurling the plates at the wall. Or the moment where Eddie executes Andy. Or how about when Ned Dameron gave us the first image of what a Tahin looks like. And guys, and then there's Michael Whelan. Michael Whelan, who gave us our first image of Roland. Whether that first image is the cover, Roland with David, his first sacrifice perched on one shoulder, the silhouette of the tower over the other, or the black and white captured in the rectangle of Roland with Zoltan perched on his shoulder, the zigzagging dead of Tull leading to where he stands, the hanging of hacks, the black and white of Roland holding the jawbone in the speaking ring, Jake and Roland fighting back slow mutants, Roland on the beach looking over the ocean at the tower beyond, the last stand of Callahan. Mordred's attack on Flag, Roland and Jake sharing a cigarette, the final moment of the Ka-Tet, the mythic image of the Crimson King, 
Roland carrying Jake's body. The shocked black and white image of Roland right before he sucked back into the wheel of Ka. The writer had his time to shine in the series. And also, you need to remember that Roland is King's twinner. So it's rather fitting that here at the end, it's the writer and the artist side by side. And now it's time for the Crimson King. As I've stated before in previous reviews, the ultimate reveal of the Crimson King is a letdown. If you were expecting an all-powerful, end-all-be-all satanic villain, the one that had been promised to us since his first introduction in the pages of Insomnia. But remember, promises are made to be broken. And just because we wanted something doesn't mean that we should get it. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here, but to me, the fact that the Crimson King is a pathetic old man is a wonderful commentary on the nature of evil. That it isn't grand and something to be feared. Instead, it's just something pitiful. As we get closer to the Crimson King, the closer we get to the nature of evil. And we see it with his underlings, first with the bumbling low men in the operating room after Mordred is born. On one hand, the scene is something out of a nightmare, with Mordred transforming into a monster spider baby and devouring Mia. On the other hand, as Susanna starts shooting the vampires in Cantoy, you have a bumbling, gentlemanly robot stumbling around asking Sayer what to do with the incubator he's holding, and the other low men darting one way and the next trying to find a place to hide. Later, in the Divar toy, through the character of Pimley Prentice, we learn that these aren't the monsters depicted in low men in yellow coats, but simply working-class stiffs. They don't think about the bigger picture, just the immediate task that their jobs require. While the Breakers might be enslaved, they're not enslaved with chains, but with comfort. And King makes the point to tell us that Ted and the other Breakers were lured into Aljul Siento with a price that wasn't too outlandish. As Ted says, the Crimson King is funding the end of the world on a budget. Little details like this paint the all-powerful villain not as an all-powerful villain, but as an amplified version of a type of person we see in our lives all the time. Whether it's the blowhard politician, a blowhard businessman, a blowhard businessman turned politician, a hunger-powered boss, or just anyone that holds a position in a broken system, much like the Crimson King is a player in a world that is breaking down all around him. The more Roland learns of the Crimson King, the more he should realize that he needs to denounce his quest to reach the Tower, especially when he discovers the painting by Patrick Danville of the Tower in which he sees the Crimson King imprisoned on the balcony, and he even says he's locked out of the only thing he ever wanted. Well, what the hell, Roland? If you see that this is a punishment to those who seek out the Dark Tower, what do you expect is going to happen when you approach it yourself? When Roland and Susanna arrive at the castle of the king, they're told many stories about the Crimson King. He's poisoned his workers. He cut himself with a spoon that he swallowed when he killed himself. He's a dead king trapped in the tower. Again, we don't know what's true. And it's okay that we don't know. And Roland is presented with a choice. He can certainly move forward, which causes his own set of problems. The first of which being, what happens if the Crimson King gets his hands on Roland's guns? Will the beams and Stephen King be safe? What does Roland have to gain from continuing his quest? The Crimson King has been immobilized. His forces dismantled. Roland has nothing to gain by continuing to the tower and everything to lose. Hey guys, let's talk about Stephen King. Let's talk about the car crash. In this book, we get the car crash. The car crash from June 19th, 1999 that almost took Stephen King out of this world. Now, I have talked about before in the Stephen King cast all of the events of car crashes that have ever occurred in his novels. Now, 
This is what makes Stephen King's inclusion in the story work, more so than if J.K. Uh, Rowling had introduced herself into the pages of Harry Potter or J.R.R. Tolkien had introduced himself into the pages of Lord of the Rings. It wouldn't have worked. It does work for King for all the reasons that I've listed before, but also because of the car crash and because since the publication of, Car of Carrie in which one of the characters dies from a pretty brutal car crash, it's as if, like I had talked about with Jake, this seismic event had ripple effects that just recreate itself again and again and again in Stephen King's works as if there was a level of the tower that was warning him that one day he would almost die at the hands of a driver um, in a car. So not only does King include himself into the story, but in doing so, he mythologizes his near-death experience when he's hit by the car. And you're when your life is violently torn apart, when your family is forced to believe that your injuries will result in death, when you are forced into a long, painful rehabilitation, how can you not feel anger at the man who did this to you? Yes, King's death was very close to his certain death, which would have certainly meant that Roland would never reach the tower. The tower would have fallen. So when King inserted himself into the narrative, it makes sense that he would take the moment that almost caused the tower to fall in real life and build around it. But remember, the van wasn't driven by a robot. The van was driven by a real-life person, and he is brought into this story without permission. I understand that he didn't ask Kin's permission to strike him with his van either, but we have to look at Brian Smith in this novel. What King does, he vilifies this man, and by putting him into the pages of this book, he immortalizes him. And the real-life Brian Smith is now captured in print in a book that sold who knows how many copies, books that will live on longer after both men have died. He immortalized him as a fool. I mean, he presents him like a shimi we shouldn't root for. It's not fair that King was struck by the van. But is it fair that King, in turn, etched a carving of the man to withstand the test of time? I had issues with this when I first read it, but, you know, now, I mean, the, the man wasn't paying attention. For all we know, the depiction we get of him, it's like what happened in real life. I mean, in real life, he had an appalling driving record. And King didn't mince words when describing him to the newspapers. He wrote, This is a guy who only has a little bit of brains to begin with. I mean, I have fantasies of confronting him, King wrote in the extract. But Brian Smith is like Gertrude Stein said about L.A. There's no there there. Call it fate. Call it God. Call it... Call what you're left... Call what you're left with is this guy who has the IQ of a tomato soup can, an empty tomato soup can. And he hits me at the one blind spot on a long road. No one else to hit for miles when, say, NASA can't get a missile to land on Mars with all the brains and technology in the world. Then you think that there's something odd going on. Or maybe NASA should just hire Brian Smith. Now, look, I mean, should we feel bad for him? I mean, he nearly killed the world's most prolific storyteller. So this is what he gets because of his actions. And here's the thing about Brian Smith. He's dead. He died under mysterious circumstances. I could be wrong, but I think toxicology reports came back without any results to indicate anything in his system. He died on Stephen King's birthday. The man who nearly killed Stephen King 
dies under mysterious circumstances on Stephen King's birthday. His death is like something out of a Stephen King novel. Now, whether you like the inclusion of King into his story or not, you have to give him credit for not presenting himself as a hero. He's not uh, presented as a great man for creating these stories. It's not a congratulatory function. See how cool I am, everyone? Look at these great books I gave you. You liked them, right? Now you have to like me. It's, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. I mean, King here is very self-deprecating. His introduction in A Song of Susanna focused heavily on Eddie's growing suspicion that King has a drinking problem. This, combined with Roland's anger at him, shows that this version of King is weak. It's funny, too, that King allows himself to be punished by his characters for the hell they have to go through. In the story, he didn't place Jake in way of the van, but his lack of action caused Jake to jump in front of it, so he's still responsible for the death of the boy in that regard. Of course, we aren't supposed to like him for that. Regardless, King has fun with this inclusion, with conversations like the one between Irene Tassenbaum and Roland on page 522. How does it happen that a writer who's not even very good, and I can say that, I've read four or five of his books, gets to be in charge of the world's destiny, or the entire universe? If he's not very good, why didn't you stop at one? Um, I mean, that's, that's a great line. Now, after the deaths of Eddie and Jake, King revisits his character self as King, the character who's writing the book that we're currently reading, and he touches upon how unexpected Jake's death was to him, as it wasn't supposed to be this way. According to fictional King, all of the notes he's made over the years indicated that Jake was supposed to make it to the end. They were all supposed to make it to the end. It's another way that King attributes his work to the breeze of Ka that blows through him, relinquishing him of all control and guilt. This harkens back to Paul Sheldon, Annie Wilkes, and her anger directed at him for the death of Misery. He writes, He thinks of Misery, Annie Wilkes calling Paul Sheldon a cock duty brat for trying to get rid of silly, bubble-headed Misery Chastain. Annie is shouting that Paul was the writer, and the writer is God to the characters. He doesn't have to kill any of them if he doesn't want to. King argues this, claiming he's no god, and if he had been, Jake would still be alive. Later, when Roland and Susanna read Child Roland to the Dark Tower came, they realize that Robert Browning had glimpsed Roland's tale long before Stephen King, which proves that King is not a god, only that he's a messenger, like Browning had been before him. Carrie. Christine. Pennywise. Flag. Cujo. Most of the population out there is able to rattle off the names of Stephen King's villains. That same population isn't really able to rattle off the names of his heroes. And it's unfortunate that his heroes aren't as well known. Because if any name should reside at the top of his mountain of his characters, or top of the tower of his characters, it's Roland Deschain the gunslinger. King has often said that it was difficult for him to step into Midworld, but if that's the case, it never looked like it was difficult for him to step into Roland's cowboy boots. More than any other character he ever put on page, and that includes himself, this is the most nuanced, complicated character that we've ever seen in his 41 years of writing. When he first strolled into our imagination on the trail of the man in black, he appeared to be a recreation of Clint Eastwood, but with every step he took across the desert, his character deepened, his contradictions grew stronger, 
and he became the most fascinating character that we've ever read in a Stephen King novel. In a publication history that has included a telekinetic mass murderer, a possessed family man with the murder of his own family, a vampire who took over an entire town, a demon wizard who sought to rule America in the aftermath of a biblical plague, a power-hungry politician with the potential to obliterate the world under a flurry of nuclear bombs, a rabid monster who will tear apart anything in its way, a love-struck haunted car who will run down anyone that crosses the object of its affection, a shape-shifting spider clown who has feasted on the souls of children since Homo sapien first settled near its kill zone, long buried aliens who take over your body and then your mind, a sociopathic murdering work of fiction, or a nickel and dime store devil who will sell you a trinket for your soul. It's saying something that each and every one of these characters would tremble in fear at the approach of Roland DeShane of Gilead, he of the line of Eld. In a multiverse of boogeymen that went on to make Stephen King a millionaire, Roland is the boogeyman of the boogeyman. And he's proven this time and time again in the pages of his own stories. What are the slow mutants but zombies? Zombies might be a threat on a weekly basis of The Walking Dead, but they're no threat to Roland. Vampires? Vampires can't stop Roland. What's more powerful than a locomotive? Roland. Werewolves? Roland. King Kong? Roland. Doctor Doom? Roland. The Devil? Roland. It must have been hard for King to finally close the book on this character who simultaneously functioned as his own action hero and his epic poem subject. He was relentless in his goal. He would strike down anyone that stood in his way, yet he'd demonstrate more honest love than any other character in any of King's other works. Like I said, he was a man of contradictions, but those contradictions never made him a lesser character, only made him the best character that King ever created. Alright guys, I want to talk about twinning. Finally, in the pages of this novel, King confirms the relationship between King and Roland. That King's Earth, Keystone Earth, and All World are the two key worlds, twinners of each other. It makes the reading experience that much more enjoyable as the novels become doorways themselves, little windows opening up to another world. By including himself into the story, an act which alienated a number of readers, he turns his novel into the actualization of his quote, that books are uniquely portable magic. There's a lot of doubling in here. Jake dies as a result of a car crash, just as he had the first time. Eddie's death is a callback to Cuthbert's death. The novel begins with a Dixie Pig, and Roland later returns the Dixie Pig and retraces that particular route. Susanna, Oi, and Roland's arrival at the Castle of the Crimson King is very reminiscent of their arrival to Emerald City and Wizard and Glass, and it goes on and on and on. Alright guys, the Tet Corporation. Though Roland's tale is finished, it looks like there's more adventures that could be told of the Tet Corporation. And though John Collum never ventured into Midworld, who's to say that he didn't send anyone over there on secret missions? And the very end with Susanna, Jake, and Eddie, she mentions that they'll need to find the Tet Corporation, believing they still have work to do. We know the Roland that is making his way through the Mohane at this point is one that's learned enough to have picked up the Horn of Eld. When he arrives on the Western Sea, which versions of Eddie and Susanna will he pull into this world? Eddie Dean and Odetta Holmes, or Eddie and Susanna Torin. And that third doorway on the beach? Will it be the pusher, or will it be the boy? Between the time the characters reunite in a snowy New York and the time Roland reaches the sea, what conversations will they have? What dreams will they have? 
Will they remember enough of their time in Midworld to want to return? To go through it all over again? Will they return to save their Din from the endless cycle of torture he puts himself through? Will they at last enter the clearing together? I hope we never find out. I know I just mentioned that I would like new stories with the Tet, but our main characters? I'm not sure if we need them anymore. And after everything they've been through, I like the idea of them having peace, living and loving each other in another world. Easter eggs, guys. Time for Easter eggs. And there's a lot of them. The first, Georgie's paper boat from It? What a wonderful, wonderful callback. In the moments that lead up to Callahan's death, the low men manage to knock the turtle out of his hand where King writes, It disappeared from this tale forever like a certain paper boat some you might remember. This works on two levels. One is just an awesome and unexpected callback. If this is King's final published work before his retirement, why shouldn't he revisit the big moments of his career? Secondly, within the pages of Song of Susanna, Stephen King, the character, understood that all of his other works all fed into the Dark Tower somehow, and even suggested that it was a rough draft of a longer work. That would explain the role of the turtle, of the spider, and it. The turtle, of course, doesn't function exactly the same as the guardians are presented in the pages of the Dark Tower, and it could simply be because it was an author's interpretation of forces he couldn't understand. Same thing with the spider. He wrote about a monstrous spider because as a child, the Crimson King made a mark on him in the form of a hundred tiny red spiders, and perhaps King the Storyteller caught glimpses of Mordred. The horror and revulsion led to the creation of the spider from it, and the paper boat could have been an interpretation of the spider figurine, the Skolpada, that Father Callahan used to hold back the low men. Two, Kanta, Roland, when astral projecting, sees the events of the Dixie Pig and sees Callahan holding the turtle, which he understands is a Kanta, one of the little gods. This is the language of the dead, and the cat and the Kanta were seen in the pages of Desperation. Three, Grandfather flees. Also, when Roland is astral projecting, he spots a monstrous insects scurrying about the Dixie Pig, knows them to be called Grandfather Fleas, and mentions how he had seen them before, known as Little Doctors. This, of course, is from the Little Sisters of Eluria. 4. Sarah Laughs John Collum takes Eddie and Roland to a lake house named Carolaughs, which is a nod towards King's novel Bag of Bones, whose lake house was named Sarah Laughs. Number 5. Donald Trump Nigel the Robot is reading The Dead Zone by Stephen King, whose villain is Donald Trump. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say Donald Trump? Oh, I meant Greg Stilson. My bad. Uh, number six, they discuss Hearts in Atlantis, the novel, and then later, Ted Broadigan from Hearts in Atlantis shows up. Later, the events from the short story are referenced, including the characters of Carol Gerber and Bobby Garfield. Number seven, Thinking Cap. Flag finds the thinking cap that Munchen had placed upon Tyler's head in Black House. Number eight, Delane. It's interesting that Flag continued to haunt the kingdom of Delane in Eyes of the Dragon as it was his home, which he had run away from eons before. Carrie. Carrie isn't one of the breakers, but she is mentioned by Dinky, who says that he's always felt like Carrie at the prom. Later, Susanna remembers a time when she had had her period in gym class and some of the girls chanted, plug it up. Number 10, Everything is Eventual. Dinky Earnshaw shows back up and turns out that the company he'd been working for in the short story was an assassination subsidiary of North Central Positronics. Number 11, The Shop. The Shop isn't referenced, but Algel Ciento is very reminiscent of The Shop, 
monitoring Charlie McGee. Doc 1 and 2. This was Ralph's nicknames for Lachesis and Clotho from Insomnia, and Ted very briefly refers to two army doctors as these names. Number 13, Misery. At one point, King thinks of Annie Wilkes and Paul Sheldon. Number 4, Langoliers. Behind one door in Fedek, Susanna hears chewing and imagines a giant disembodied mouth, which has to be a reference to the Langoliers. Number 15, Stuttering Bill and Joe Collins. I've talked about this, I believe, in my bonus episode of It, the Spider, and the Turtle, in which I've explored some connections between the Dark Tower and King's ultimate thesis on the horror genre. There are a couple ways of looking at it. One, now that we're closer to the end and everything is failing, what was once grand is now shrunken, small, and weaker. The spider and the clown in It was a universal threat, much more powerful in the pages of It than the Crimson King is in the pages of the Dark Tower. But by the time we get to the end of the Dark Tower, we get a clown and we get a spider, but they're not the same threat or power level. It's like the sea retreated, killing off the larger monsters and what we get instead flop and writhe on a muddy beach. Another way of looking at it is what we read as it was King unknowingly tapping into Endworld and the wind of Cobb blowing elements from the Dark Tower through him, the turtle, the spider, the clown, and King refashioned them into more palatable way. Either way, Joe Collins and Stuttering Bill function as a nice Easter egg for the audience. Joe Collins' story hints at what we know of Pennywise, stating that he had been a teacher because he liked kids before going into show business to become a comedian. Well, Pennywise was known to spend a lot of time with kids and was also in show business, just like a comedian, wanting to make people laugh. Okay, guys. Final thoughts. So here we are. Unlike Roland, we've reached the tower together. It's been a long and strange journey, and the reread, for me, has been a great experience. When I sat down and began the podcast in August of 2014, I couldn't wait to revisit Wolves of the Kala Song of Susanna and the Dark Tower because I was so removed from the immediacy and the emotion that blocked me from, appreciate, from appreciating what are some incredible moments and choices by the author. 2004 me hated Stephen King's inclusion. 2015 me loves it. 2004 me hated the death of Randall Flagg, who gets taken out like a punk. 2015 me thinks it's the best way the character could have gone out. 2004 me hated the fact that Jake and Eddie were killed. 2015 me lauds King's decision to do this, knowing that it was a painful one to make. 2004 me hated the letdown of the Crimson King. 2015 me loved the swerve that the all-powerful figure was really just a greedy old man. 2004 me hated that Mordrin wasn't a straight-up monster. 2015 me loved that Stephen King created a nuanced, pitiful creature whose short life was marked by misery and isolation, serving as a reflection of his father. 2004 me wanted an uplifting ending. 2015 me loves the growing desperation, weariness, isolation, and pain that continues to build and build until Roland is squeezing his way through the final passageway within the tower, literally being crushed by the object of his desire. And don't forget that we're living in a Game of Thrones world. The major beats of this book are straight out of a George R. R. Martin novel. Shocking turns, sudden deaths, killing off major characters, unrelenting bleakness. It doesn't make for an easy read, but it's never not thrilling. There were some novels that were more of a chore to sit through than some others, but never any of the Dark Tower books. 
Even Song of Susanna, which I felt was saddled with serving as the bridge between the two books without its own three-act structure to carry the characters or plot. Rereading The Dark Tower is to be Roland himself. Like Roland, you embark upon the same quest that you have before, but each time you do so, you're a little bit different. I'm not the same person that I was in 2004 when I first read Book 7. I'm certainly not the same person I was when I was in 6th grade when I picked up the Gunslinger for the first time. The story remains the same, like the path that Roland himself will take. But each time, I find myself back in the Mohane, each time I climb those dark tower stairs, I like to believe I'm a little bit better of a person, that the life that I'm living at that point is just a little bit richer than the one that I was living the last time I had done so. Alright guys, that's all I got. That's all I got for this week. But next week, make sure you come back for my review of Cell, where Stephen King returns to the horror genre that had made him famous with such novels as Christine and Cujo and Pet Cemetery. So, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast. Sacrifice Gunslinging man